Psalm chapter 2 begins, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. We've been in this study on understanding current events in the light of Bible prophecy now for, well, this is the 35th lesson in our study. And our objective is that we might be able to develop that peace within us in the midst of the conflict that is about us, that we might know what God is doing in order that we might understand why the circumstances are the way they are, and more important, that we might understand what we are to be doing in response. The second psalm provides a rather accurate analysis of where we are in a world that is sick with sin, but it provides some excellent advice as well. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are they who put their trust in Him. And I've studied last time in Revelation chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, we went through Revelation chapter 11, verse 14. And in that we saw an interruption between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. We call that a parenthesis when there is a break in uh, the continuing dialogue where the author goes back to fill in detail that he has simply mentioned in passing earlier. And so we had one of those parentheses where the order of continuity in the events was interrupted in order to give us some additional detail. And what we saw in our study last time was some additional information about one that was called a mighty angel. The mighty angel. As we analyzed that in our study, we were able to see that it was a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And uh, that He appears... Uh, in this form with a message. Remember the word angel, if we were to translate that into English, means messenger. And so sometimes when we see the word angel in the Bible, it's referring to a celestial messenger, and other times it's referring to a terrestrial messenger. Even the pastors of the churches are called angels. I will not try to get any ground out of that today. But uh, we do find uh, that word means messenger. And so the messenger in our study is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us some detail about what was going to occur and then went to the last three and a half years of the tribulation 
when the 144,000 evangelists that had been commissioned at the beginning of that seven-year period, uh, when they are in such uh, danger of being put to death that they are instructed by the Lord to uh, go into the wilderness and we saw that God then sends two witnesses. We identified those two witnesses as Moses and Elijah. There are a number of different um, suggestions of who it might be, but Moses and Elijah seem to be the, the ones that fit into this and follow in with the continuity of, of what we find in harmonizing the the whole of Scripture about the two. The statement in the Old Testament is very clear that Elijah would come. And as we uh, see the struggle over the body of Moses and we find the miracles that are performed by these two men during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, it seems uh, I'm confident uh, in the analysis that it would be Moses and Elijah. And they are going to come back and they are going to witness preach the gospel for uh, three and a half years, and then we saw that when their work is done, uh, then they will be killed. Their bodies will lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. The world will be celebrating. They finally were able to kill these two preachers, but in the midst of their celebration, God raises them up from the dead, and they ascend into heaven. So that comes right at the end of the tribulation. And so with that parenthesis, we had an explanation and some more information. But beginning in chapter 11, verse 15, we go back then to the chronological order of events. That's why the book of Revelation is so difficult for uh, many to understand is the, the order of events uh, is interrupted and information is given. Then we go back and resume the order of events and follow that through. In the first aspect of that then, we uh, are coming back to the trumpet judgments. We remember in the seven seal scroll that was opened, it was opened through six seals and then there was an interruption and information given. And then we went back to the opening of the seventh seal. And when the seventh seal of that scroll was opened, it introduced seven trumpets. We went through the first six of those trumpets, and then once again there was an interruption before the seventh trumpet sounded. So we've worked our way through that interruption, and now we come back to the seventh trumpet, which is identified as the third Woe, and we pick up that chronology of events. In verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 15 through 18 returns then back to the trumpet judgments that were interrupted at the end of uh, the 21st verse in the ninth chapter as we began the 10th chapter. And so it's immediately evident that under this trumpet there are a good deal of specifics uh, concerning the events of the tribulation that have not yet been revealed. Verse 19 uh, is generally agreed to actually be a part of uh, uh, the chapter uh, that is the subsequent chapters and fit into that dialogue. But the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet are similar in that there's not a direct judgment that is announced by them, but rather there is a setting up of... Uh, other judgments that are coming and of the events that are going to come to pass. So the last trumpet reveals, uh, just as the seventh seal revealed the seven trumpets, 
the seventh trumpet reveals then seven vials or seven bowls of wrath that are going to be released upon the earth. And that's the subject matter of chapter 16. The older Greek manuscripts read a little different than what we have in the Texas Receptus from which the King James was translated. Now, you'll understand that with the translation of the Bible, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so, in order to understand exactly uh, what is being stated, it's beneficial to go back to the original language and see if something might have got lost in translation. And occasionally that's the problem that we face, and we have that here, in that in the, the group of manuscripts that were used to translate the King James translation in 1611 were the best manuscripts that we had available at that time. But since that time, additional manuscripts have been discovered, some 5,000 additional manuscripts. And the ones that were used for the King James were copies of copies of copies that were made in the in the 10th century, uh, uh, in uh, yeah, in the 10th century, between the 10th and the uh, 12th century. They used those manuscripts. There was a group of them that were called textus receptus. That means the texts that were received by all the scholars that were working with them. But now we have manuscripts that go back to the first century. And um, so there's a whole process of evaluating uh, what manuscript should be considered over another manuscript when there are discrepancies. Now let me be quick to point out there are very few discrepancies. Though we're dealing with manuscripts that were hand copied from year to year, year after year, up until uh, the 14th century, uh, we have these things that were being hand copied, and uh, yet there is less than 2% of, of disagreement, not really disagreement, but a lack of harmony between more than 5,000 manuscripts that have been found. And of that, it's less than point zero one percent that we can't resolve by knowing and recognizing scribal errors when they copied it. And so we can have great confidence in whatever translation we use based on the original languages that the manuscripts uh, are dependable. Now we get into translation, we get into some that we call paraphrasing, like the Living Bible, where they don't attempt to translate word for word what the text says. They try to translate thought for thought what the word says. So you're depending on the scholar. I use that with some looseness. You're depending upon the one that's doing that uh, as he seeks to understand what was being said in the original language. And so, uh, in, uh, from time to time, I will uh, make reference that the King James reads this way, but the older, uh, more reliable manuscripts, and I base my, uh, my doctrine primarily on the Nestle-Allen text, which is a combination of various manuscripts uh, that go back to the first century, as I said. No real basic doctrinal issue that the church deals with is involved in that controversy. Where the controversy between denominations and churches come is interpretation. And so we, we seek to translate and leave the interpretation uh, up to you uh, to understand what's being said. But in the King James, this 15th verse says, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. The better manuscripts say the kingdom of this world, not 
kingdoms plural, but kingdom singular, have become the kingdom singular of the Lord and of His Christ. So there, uh, there is a reference not to the various kingdoms of the world, but to that one world government that is going to be formed, uh, at least the attempt's going to be made, and it will be the dominant one. There'll still be some other governments resisting at the time of the coming of Christ, but there will be one dominant kingdom, and it will be ruled by the unholy uh, trinity of the beast uh, from the Gentile world, the beast from uh, Israel, and Satan himself will form that, what I identify as an unholy trinity, uh, and a government that is dominated. So that kingdom that uh, Satan attempts to control and manipulate uh, will become the kingdom uh, of our Lord. Notice when we read that it said, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That has not yet taken place. As we read it in the language, it's a concluded fact. It's in the tense that identifies the anticipation is so real that it's spoken of as though it had already occurred. And when it's God that makes the statement and He has uh, no power over Him, no sovereignty over Him, then we can rest assured that what He said, as though it had already done, is going to be done. The seventh trumpet does not bring in the kingdom, but it only shows then what is going to occur, the eventual result, of the world, the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Now, some, when they look at this, um, understand uh, uh, this may be to be uh, in the millennium and uh, others in the eternal kingdom. Now, if His rule is eternal then it would be improper to say it lasts a thousand years. But that kingdom which lasts a thousand years is during the millennium. That's where we get the word millennium. It means a thousand. And it's a thousand year of the earthly reign of Christ. But when that is ended, time ceases, and we move into the eternal uh, kingdom. Uh, it's simply a transfer from this old earth to a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be established. Look at verse 16 and following. And the four and twenty elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and washed and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee Thy great power, and that word means authority, and has reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. Back in chapter 4, we were introduced to the four and twenty elders. We identified they represent all church age believers that from the day of Pentecost in 30 AD till the rapture of the church, they are represented in that scene of 24 elders sitting upon their seats. And so we are referenced here to the church as it is in heaven. The 24 elders which sat before God on their seats, the church age believers, fell upon their faces 
and worship God. But it's spoken of now as an accomplished fact, though we, as we mentioned earlier, it is yet to take place uh, experientially. Now, there are five significant factors that are fulfilled by this utterance. The rage of the nations, number one, they've exhibited defiance and arrogance against God uh, many times over, but now that arrogance and that defiance has reached its culmination. And uh, we have the epitome of the Armageddon campaign, as we'll see in our later studies. Secondly is the wrath of God. No longer will God's patience be manifested, but at this point of time, then uh, that patience will be replaced with judgment. And so, thirdly, we have the judgment of the dead, those that have died in all the various ages uh, as unbelievers are going to be judged. And along with that then, number four is the rewarding of the godly. And that will occur for the church at the rapture, but it will be at the second advent of Christ, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that it will occur for the Old Testament saints. And then at the end of time, when... Uh, of the great white throne judgment is set up uh, for the others. Fifthly is the destruction of the destroyers of the earth. God is going to bring vengeance and he is going to bring the world under his control. Look at verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. So John resumes the historical chronology here from a different viewpoint and that in which he's going to introduce the chief actors, the chief participants during the tribulation period and especially during the last three and a half years. There is still judgment coming, evidenced by lightnings and voices and thunders and earthquake and great hail. But from Revelation chapter 12 on, a new beginning and fuller information or details are given to us. So Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14 form a connected and uh, very important prophecy in uh, the book where chapter 12 and 13 depict the principal performers or actors that are going to be involved. The details are then given in the chapter that follows. And chapter 14 gives us the consummation then in preparation to the establishing of the kingdom. From Revelation 12.5 to Revelation 14.20, it covers a vast expanse of history from the birth of Christ to the time of the treading down of the wine presses of God's wrath in the tribulation. In chapter 12 alone, there is a grouping of events that is not matched in this book of Revelation anywhere else. This really sets uh, a, a chronology of events uh, in a very quick period of time. So, when we begin at verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head was a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child, cried travailing in birth and pained, to be delivered. So he identifies a great wonder in heaven, something that is going to uh, be of utmost importance, and he introduces a woman. But the woman is not in heaven, she is seen upon the earth, 
But the wonder or the sign of it, the explanation of it is viewed in heaven. So God's purposes concerning this woman is revealed so that we can know and heaven can know what is taking place. Now there are two distinct features that are indicated concerning the woman. Her clothing is of importance to us. She is clothed uh, in, in humility uh, with the sun, the moon, and a crown of 12 stars. And uh, she is a mother with child, is in labor as the scene opens. And uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, we were introduced to a woman in the book of Revelation, a woman by the name of Jezebel. Now, it wasn't the Jezebel uh, of Ahab's wife that squatted on the throne of Israel uh, during that reign, but it was symbolic with the likeness of Jezebel. Um, it was symbolic to uh, the circumstances and the character of that period. And uh, uh, the it represents uh, a uh, social order that's focused upon uh, the clerical position. Remember, Jezebel was the uh, wife of Ahab that led the nation into idolatry. And uh, she uh, she was out for the preacher, but the preacher had the final laugh on that uh, as God went about. And so uh, there is a reference to that false religious system. And uh, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, we'll find uh, her called the great whore. Uh, and uh, it will not just be one denomination. It will be a conglomerate of, uh, of different Christian uh, by name. Uh, and religions that are formed together to identify what is called the great whore. So we're introduced in Revelation to Jezebel, and then we're introduced to the woman that is identified as the great whore, and that's going to be the corrupt church. And uh, then the third woman will be the church, the genuine church, uh, which is the Lamb's wife. So those four we have been introduced to uh, symbolically. And now we come to the fourth woman mentioned here, and she is seen to be uh, in travail, uh, giving birth, and uh, uh, gives birth to a uh, male child, uh, as we see in the text. In verse 3 it says, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a clo woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, and she being with child, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. Who is this woman? Well, there's various interpretations. Remember the danger of interpretation is um, is forming uh, an opinion based on the uh, information that is given there. But we, we see that she is described uh, as clothed with the sun and the moon and has a crown of 12 stars on her head. There are, uh, along with that, then, we have another description uh, that we're going to see of a great red dragon. But the woman that is in view here is the nation Israel itself. No, it's not the Virgin Mary. The information that we have in the context does not coincide with any description that we have of her. But the information that we have certainly does identify for us, the 
identification of Israel itself and uh, the 12 tribes of Israel being identified here with the 12 stars, the crown of 12 stars. And it's Israel that gives birth to the Messiah. Certainly it was the Virgin Mary, but Israel, the nation, is in view here. It says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. What a span of time is covered in this section. She brought forth the man-child. So this is the birth of Christ that is being identified then. The one who's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And then it moves to the ascension of Christ. Her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Nothing given here in this text about the time between his birth and the time between his death or even his death, but rather that he was translated into heaven. And then the woman fled into the wilderness. Well, that's going to be in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So there's quite a scope of time that's being expressed here in this synopsis. So the the fact that the man-child to rule the world um, is given certainly identifies this as Christ, uh, the birth of Christ. Uh, his sovereign right to rule the world is documented throughout Scripture in Psalm chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 7, two passages uh, that are of great importance there. But the entire life period of Jesus from his birth to his ascension is not addressed because we're not dealing with the church age, we're dealing with Israel. And this is the conclusion of the uh, administration uh, under uh, Israel as God's chosen people. And then it skips to the last three and a half years where the Jews are told to get out of Jerusalem and God has said in a variety of places uh, that they are to go to the wilderness, that they are to go into Edom and Moab where he had provided a place for them. And Edom and Moab, uh, uh, presently the land of Jordan, uh, about midway of the state of Jordan, uh, God has prepared a place for them and they will be going there during the last three and a half years of the tribulation will be in heaven. Well, in chapter 12, beginning at verse 7 and going through verse 17 then, we have a, a reference to a war in heaven. We're told in verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought with his angels, and he prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. In this section of the chapter, another personality then is introduced uh, to us uh, during the tribulation, and that's Michael, the archangel. Now, there are three archangels that are clearly identified in Scripture. I think the Roman Catholic Church has a larger list of those they have identified as archangels. But Scripture-wise, I can only identify three that are archangels. We have Michael, who operates under the authority and the control of God the Father. We have Gabriel, who operates under the authority uh, and, the, and the working of the Holy Spirit. And then we have Lucifer, <clears throat> who rebelled, was under the uh, control of the Lord Jesus Christ, before his physical birth, and uh, he, as Lucifer's name is changed to Satan, which means the accuser, 
And uh, so when when you read in Scripture about Michael the archangel, the work of God the Father is in view. When you read about Gabriel, the work of the Holy Spirit is in view. And then, of course, the church is actually a replacement uh, in a form uh, of the a group that was under uh, Lucifer. Each one of the fallen angels had a third of the angels under their, of the archangels had a third of the angels under their authority. Now, whether we are told that Satan takes a third with him, whether that's the third that we're used to ministering under him or whether they come from uh, the other two groups as well, uh, we're not given any information in Scripture at that. But Michael is in view here because of the work of the Father uh, is being stressed. Now, it's kind of unusual to read about war in heaven, a place where peace and bliss and joy are said to prevail. But here we have recorded the ultimate doom of Satan beginning and just as his first sin is documented for us in the 14th chapter of Isaiah and in the 28th chapter of Ezekiel, uh, where he sinned, uh, sought to overthrow God, was defeated, and uh, and, and was, his, his position was taken away from him, and he was relegated uh, to the atmosphere, but he still has access to heaven at this time. Remember the story of Job, that Satan came before the throne of God as the angels were coming to give reports, Satan came there. At this point of this conflict, midway through the tribulation, he will no longer have access to heaven. That will infuriate him so that he will intensify his attack. That's why we call the first three and a half years of the tribulation, tribulation, and we call the last three and a half years the great tribulation, because it's midway through the tribulation that this uh, dispelling of Satan, who is, the word I said earlier meant accuser, uh, he is expelled and no longer able to accuse uh, the saints before God. He is confined to the earth and its immediate atmosphere. Neither was there found place any more in heaven uh, for him uh, is noted in the text. In verse 9 it says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So that would seem to imply that the third of the angels that were under him are, are the ones that are involved. Now twice it is stated that Satan was cast out, and one time it is added that his angels were cast out with him. He is identified as the great dragon. He is called uh, the old serpent. He is called the devil. He is certainly the master of cunning uh, and deceitfulness. And um, so this event will occur in the middle of the tribulation. John says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and uh, of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. So the intensification of the tribulation is going to be clearly evident once Satan is limited so that he no longer has access to heaven. 
Notice there are those that are victors during this time, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, those that that love not their lives, uh, uh, were willing to die for their cause. Uh, the inhabitants of the earth and the sea are those then that are unbelievers that remain here. Look at verse 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And the woman, to the woman were given two wings of an eagle that she might fly unto the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. A time is a year, times is two years and half a time. So it's three and a half years. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So verses 7 through 12 explain why the woman, Israel, is to flee and, uh, uh, the, the urgency on the part of Satan realizing that his time is short, he intensifies, as we said, that attack upon Israel and they are to flee and God will provide protection for them. Just as the Lord uh, undertook for Israel at the incarnation, He does so now by giving her, as is identified here, like the wings of a great eagle. Uh, it's kind of interesting to hear newscasters get involved in this kind of dialogue, but uh, when Israel was reconstituted as a nation in May of 1948, uh, they used great transport airplanes to lift the Jews out of where they were back to the, uh, out of Germany and, and throughout Europe. Uh, they had one of the biggest airlift programs that the world had ever seen at that time. And so there were newscasters uh, quoting this scripture. He was delivering them on the wings of eagles. They just had the battle wrong and the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, could well be the same means, uh, uh, but uh, they are delivered uh, and they are taken care of. And we are given uh, the, the length of that time and we see that that amounts to the three and a half years of the last half of the tribulation. But Satan sends an army out after them. Now, the word flood uh, seems to be used here symbolically of a, of a flood of people, of soldiers or, or nations or whatever uh, to uh, go after the Jews. But God uh, miraculously delivers them uh, once again in that situation. And chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, the apostle uh, John continues then to identify the chief participants of the end time. And in this chapter, he adds two more to those that have been given in verse, uh, in chapter 12. Uh, we would need to do a, a harmony with Daniel, uh, chapter 9 and 11, um, in order to understand, uh, uh, this uh, aspect, but I want to simply summarize it for us in our study here. In verse 1 of chapter 13, John said, I stood up on the sand of the sea. Now, we're going to make a, a correction there in a moment. I stood upon the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Uh, in chapter 19, verse 20, should we ever get to that point, uh, the two beasts of this chapter 
are designated as the beast and the false prophet with along with the dragon and that forms that unholy trinity of uh, the Gentile world leader, the um, Jewish world leader and uh, Satan himself as they uh, correspond together uh, to uh, bring about what they hope will be the conquest and the control of the world. And uh, so they are identified there. Where the King James text, John writing said, I stood upon the sand of the sea. We uh, actually see in uh, the Greek text, uh, it's not that I stand, but John says he stands. He stands upon the sand of the sea. So the um, the fact that it is from the sea indicates this is a Gentile world leader, and it is he that is referenced uh, by John, uh, not John saying, I stood upon the sand, but he stood upon the sand. This beast... Uh, that came out of the sea, that came out from among the Gentiles, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. This beast represents what we identify as the revived Roman Empire. The Roman Empire <clears throat> crumbled and fell and 476 and uh, there's not been much threat to the world since then but we see the wound was not mortal uh, we read about the beast having a wound and then a deathly wound and then surviving it and reviving and what we are introduced here to is then the revived Roman Empire uh, that will attempt to dominate and control the world. And this dictator is seen. The beast refers to the empire itself and there will be a dictator that people will respond to in a great way. Now, some interpret this first beast as the Antichrist, a political reader, a leader, and the second beast that's introduced as an apostate Jew, and I fall within that category, uh, I think we can clearly see the difference between the political leader and the religious leader as they merge together here. So the first beast represents the Roman Empire. The ten toes in the image that Daniel describes to us in the second chapter um, identify a confederation of ten nations, and you'll find in in that study some are iron and some are clay, and they're intermixed together. Well, the iron ones are those that were in the original uh, Roman Empire. The clay ones identify those that are added, uh, were not in the original, and uh, that image is crucial in our understanding. Uh, the symbolisms that are used there to identify that, but it relates to a revived Roman Empire. In verse 2 he says, And the beast that I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, that would be Satan, gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So we're talking about a demon-possessed, a satanic-possessed dictator that is going to arrive uh, in power in a new formulated uh, revived Roman Empire. Now through my years of study and, and of preaching uh, and listening to others, it's been fascinating how these things evolve as to our speculation as to how that's going to come about and how it's going to be uh, forged. Uh, back in the 60s, 
the European Common Mart was seen as the basic organization through which the revived Roman Empire would be reestablished. And I remember early on uh, uh, in um, 80, about, I guess, yeah, about 1980, there was the idea uh, that that was about to come to fruition. There was a lot of, of uh, information circling around in evangelical churches uh, that the European Common Mart uh, had a computer that took up an entire floor of the European Common Mart. And they called it affectionately the Beast. And they assigned it the number 666. And of course that number's been assigned, probably been assigned to me a time or two, but been assigned to various entities. And, uh, uh, they said with three six digital numbers, they could assign a number to every human being on the earth and control buying and selling with the number that had been ascribed. The new union is supposed to be, the, the new nation, revived Roman Empire, is supposed to be ten nations. At that time, there were seven. But there were three that had made application, and so a lot of uh, evangelicals were sitting around uh, listening with one ear to the radio waiting for those three nations to be added so that they would be in a ten-nation confederation. But now it's, what, 27? Uh, been higher than that, been lower than that. Uh, so probably we're going to have to look to something else to identify exactly what uh, it might be. But he gives us uh, the... Uh, a diagram or a description here of that which is going to be incorporated. He said one of his heads was as it was wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. Uh, I don't know if you remember when Gorbachev was head of the Soviet Union. He had a birthmark on his bald head up here that looked like a mortal wound. There were preachers all around the world preaching Gorbachev is the Antichrist. He's got, he had a mortal wound and he's been, <laughs> been healed of that. So uh, there's no end to the fascination with these sort of things, but we need to keep them in check and simply understand uh, what God has revealed as what he wanted us to know and then to be watching. When, when this beast, uh, with, with the mortal wound is healed, the world not only wonders at him, but in verse four it said, and they worship the dragon that gave him the power unto the beast, and they worship the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war? With him. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Notice again the three and a half years that we're dealing with to finalize the tribulation. All of this, of course, is operating under the permissive will of God. Um, Job um uh, was experienced a great deal of of uh, agony uh, because of God's permissive will allowing Satan uh to take him uh to task and see if he could get him to curse God uh, God made it up to Job later on if make up is possible in those situations but uh we we find that this a beast then opens his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and all that dwell in heaven. It was given then to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them 
and power was given to him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In some of our studies through the years, uh, my experience with you in time, I have indicated that there's a great deal of confusion about the Lamb's book of life. That uh, my pastor, when I was saved, uh, when I was nine years old, told me that uh, the angels were rejoicing as they watched my name being written right then in the Lamb's book of life. But as I began to study the scripture, I found that the Lamb's book of life, the names of every human being that would ever live upon the face of the earth, were written in the book of life before the earth was founded. God knew who was going to be here. Uh, might have had some struggle over what to name Ivor. Uh, but God already knew and he had it in the book. All you had to do is find out what God recorded in the book. But uh, the the scriptures use the perfect tense when it speaks about the the names being written in. The perfect tense is a completed action in past time. The, the result continues forever. So some names are written not in the perfect tense. Before the heavens and the earth were formed and God wrote the Lamb's book of life, uh, He wrote in some names that will remain forever and other names that will be blotted out. And those that are blotted out are those who reject the gospel. Now there are those in the reform movement who say, no, no, God only selects certain ones that He desires to save and they don't have any choice in the matter. He wrote their names in the book. I said to one such pastor, you believe in eternal security? He said, absolutely. I said, then whose names are blotted out? If God only writes the names of those that are going to be saved, then whose names are blotted out? We didn't have an answer for that. I'm sure you've probably come up with one by now, but I haven't talked to him in a while. So we uh, we recognize that here their names were written in the book of life, but not written in a completed action so that they remain written forever. They worship uh, the beast. Um, they that dwell on the earth shall worship them whose names were not written in a completed action with a continuing result, it says, in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the earth. And then verse 9 says, And if any man have an ear, let him hear. Remember hearing that at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Every uh, letter that he wrote to the seven churches, uh, uh, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that leadeth into captivity, shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is patience and the faith of the saints. Wait on the Lord. Then we have, in verses 11 through 18, another participant in this final act, and it is the beast from the earth. The beast from the sea is the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. The beast from the earth is actually the beast from the land. And it refers to the land of Israel. It is therefore uh, not a Gentile, but a Jew. He is introduced to us in verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, had horns of a lamb, but spake as a dragon. His speech betrays him then that he is certainly a tool of Satan, and uh, uh, his pretense is of the meekness and humility of a lamb, but his speech betrays him in the process. We, uh, he is located in Jerusalem, according to Second Thessalonians two four. 
but he owes his position and power to the first beast, the dictator of the revived Roman Empire, and uh, and is submissive and subservient uh, to him. He appears to be the religious leader that corresponds to the political role of the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. In verse 12 it says, And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and he causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth and in the sight of men. God has always given his prophets credentials to verify their authority and their position. And this seems to be carried over by Satan himself uh, in uh, the provision of even being able to call fire down from heaven. Uh, it says the very elect would be deluded by what this dictator does uh, if it were not for the days being shortened at that particular side, uh, time. He had power to give life <clears throat> unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. <clears throat> Verse 16, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Well, there's no end to the interpretations that have been suggested concerning this identification as it's given in verse 18. Here is wisdom, let he that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. Hence the number six, six, six. And uh, by the way, that number was used in, one, in our House of Representatives this past year in an attempt to bring back a measure that would strip us of our freedom of speech and regulate those things. Uh, I believe the number was four. Six six six. I uh, I winced a little when I got my driver's license in Idaho because it is, I believe, uh, CD seven six 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 four three. So I, uh, I we, we can swing uh, at everything that comes by in an attempt to to do it in. God has a plan. He's going to work it out. Uh, no, I'm not the beast, and uh, uh, I profess faith in Jesus Christ. It appears to me this number is based upon what we find in Bible numerology. Uh, the number of three is the number of God. The number of six is the number of man. This is three sixes. It would seem to me to indicate a man who deifies himself as God and that in harmony with everything else that we've had uh, in Scripture concerning Satan with his desire and his objective to replace God himself. And uh, uh, this number 666 seems to imply that. Why has God revealed these things to us without giving us Paul Harvey's rest of the story. <laughs> we could certainly use that. Uh, well, there are two reasons that he's given us these things that come to my mind when addressing this question. The first is that we might understand what's going on today. Can you not see in the current events the forming of the catalyst that is going to bring this about? And of course, the rapture of the church will trigger it all. When um, UFOs suddenly appear, 
and transport not only the known Christians, but the dead Christians uh, come alive and they're transported by UFO out of here, uh, there's going to be a vacuum. And uh, immediately these things will begin to fall in order as we've seen in our study. So we need to understand what's going on. Secondly, we need to understand what we're supposed to be doing. So this is going on. We're supposed to sit by and and uh, just wait for it to occur, or is not God given us some work to do? Bible prophecy is given us in order for us to know God's plan, so that we can understand what's going on with individuals, with nations, with social order, with our educational system. Uh, God knew that there were going to be struggles. Um, and part of marriage and the family and the social order and government. And uh, so he gives us some information about how it's all going to end, that we can have peace in the midst of it and that our joy might be full. And yet, with all that knowledge, he went ahead and created man because he has a plan, he's working. And he has asked us to be part of that plan. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Something what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was, which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things, which are now reported unto you by them, which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The angels have a desire to look into the doctrines of the church, the prophecy that God has written, to understand how it's going to play out and what our role should be. So as we discover God's plan and understand what He's doing, that should give us understanding of what our role is. And we've summarized it in the statement that we're sojourners. That is, we are foreigners, members of the citizens of the kingdom of God living here alongside the locals to do the king's business. Our gifting, as we studied our spiritual gifts, and our circumstances as God brings them to bear in our everyday life dictate what we're to be doing then, day by day. But of course it all begins at salvation. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.